So I don't know if you guys have ever paid any attention to uh, soldiers, but soldiers often wear this stuff called web gear. Um, I don't know if you ever noticed, but their uniforms have tons of pockets on them. And, you know, granted, it's been a few years since I've been in, but we used to wear these things called BDUs, battle dress uniform. You had two pockets here, two pockets here. Of course, you had front pockets like in pants, back pockets like in pants. And you also had these cargo pockets. And then you would get this, this stuff. We called it web gear, like uh, Spider-Man. No, I'm joking. Um, and you would, it's like a little harness, and you put it on, and all kinds of things fit on it. Does that make sense? And uh, to some degree, every guy could put the stuff in the order he wanted it. He just had to be able to get to his stuff. And then you might carry also something called a rucksack. Well, I was one of those guys that kind of wanted these, these insurances. I had a lot of insurances strapped onto my body. I was a, an M60 gunner. I don't know if you know what that is. It's kind of a big automatic weapon, semi-automatic, automatic weapon, depending on what setting you have it on, and it fires a tremendous amount of shells very quickly. And uh, I always had to carry extra ammo. It was very heavy. And so that was my primary, primary weapon when I'm off adventurizing with guys. And then I also had a 45. A 45 pistol, and I used to keep it strapped right here. And uh, then I usually, I had a couple choices, and I usually carried uh, a 32 or a 25 in one of my pockets, concealed in one of my pockets. And then I always carried two knives, and don't tell on me, because it's against the Geneva Convention, but I carried a, a set of brass knuckles in my pocket. And my idea is I'm going to shoot this thing until I have nothing left to shoot with, then I'm going to shoot this thing until I have nothing left to shoot with. Then I'm going to shoot this thing until I have nothing left to shoot with. And then I'm going to slash until I can't slash anymore. Then I'm going to pound until I can't pound anymore. And then I'm going on vacation. You know, the idea was I wanted to be equipped. And sometimes I also, in my rucksack, carried a sawed-off 12-gauge. Um, uh, really good inside buildings. You get through doorways a lot easier with it go quail hunting. Now, I don't know if you guys can imagine this, but all of you guys do this. You just don't imagine yourself as a warrior facing an enemy that might want to take your life. But what we do is we put all kinds of things in our life, and those things are our levels of security, our levels of, you know, I don't want to offend anybody on this because I want to offend you later on with something else. It's more important. These levels of security are often, they become our idols. And we trust these things more than we trust the Lord. So what if I fight down to the last weapon? All my bullets are used, all my slashing's done, all my pounding's done. What does, what does it profit a man to have all the weapons and no breath in his lungs? Can I fight if I'm not even standing? I think some of us, your M60s, your, your health, and your 45s, your bank account, and your pocket weapons, those closest friends. I mean, on and on and on. The things we do to make ourselves feel safe, secure, happy, accepted. Those are the things we gather in our life. Now, 
Is this necessarily wrong? No. But what do you do when you've run out of bullets? What do you do when the bank account won't answer the problem? What do you do when, when uh, you don't have friends who, even if they were willing, were able to fix the issue? What do you do if you don't have breath in your lungs? It becomes exceedingly important at times in our life to realize how actually helpless we are in life. And sometimes, I believe, when we forget that, the Lord will find very interesting ways to remind us. That's a story we have tonight. We got a boat. Not only do we have a boat, but there are several skilled seamen aboard. Yeah, but what about the storm? We've dealt with storms. Okay, what about somebody comes walking out on the water to you in the middle of a storm? Okay, problem. What do we do now? The real point of tonight's message is that we see another sign, a sign that we might believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus. And as the ESV study Bible notes, this sign is a powerful, visible demonstration of Jesus' sovereignty over the world that he created. It's an important point. But what I see also is some people who don't quite know what all they don't have, nor do they exactly know who has them. And what he is doing is revealing their need and his provision. Join me in the scriptures. I want to pick it up right in the middle of verse 15 because it's part of the greater story and read down through verse 21. It says right in the middle of verse 15, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were what, church? And guess what? You would have been too, amen? I'm a little scared now. Verse 20, but he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. Immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now, I hope you got a bulletin because in the bulletin, you know, I left you a prize. Uh, here's a prize. Uh, this is a parallel version with, with the story of, of, of Jesus walking on the sea from Matthew 14 and from Mark 6. This might come in handy. Uh, over the next few minutes, because the first couple of points I want to make is about this account, but not from John's version. So let's get started. Now, this is not the open ocean. This is the Sea of Galilee, known for very violent storms, but I can never think of the ocean without thinking of something my brother has said many a times in my presence. My brother David was in the Navy, and he was a submariner, and, and of the ocean, he always says... He will call it uh, an object like that, or sometimes he calls it like uh, he personifies it as she. But he'll say, that thing will kill you, and she doesn't even mind. In other words, his time in the ocean as a guy going, it's, it, he saw the ocean as massively powerful. And that's always gripped me, because when I was a kid one time, I was carried away in undertow. And I was way out there before I realized it. And people were coming out to get me, and I'm like, what are y'all doing? It's like, you're in trouble. I'm like, I don't know, I'm just chilling. I was like, wait, why is the shore over there? 
I didn't even know to be afraid until somebody told me, like, you should be afraid. And then I was real afraid. This is a scary situation, right? A very scary situation. And I think it's important tonight that we see that it's not just the need for fear to be dispensed. That's what shows the greater need. I mean, yeah, they want to stop being afraid. But the real point here is to meet the one who can dispel fear forever. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, as we look into this passage, more importantly, may this passage look into us. As we look at the story, more important than the story, can we look at he who is the point of the story? Father, it's often easy to remember the facts. We want to meet the Savior. So, Father, help us. We don't want to deal with this as literature. We want this to be an oracle from heaven to us. And to get that, you're going to have to deliver it to us and not just me preach or teach on it. So help us now, God. In Jesus, I pray. Amen and amen. My first point actually comes from something we see in Mark 6 and Matthew 14, if you have your little thing. And it's this. Jesus does not allow his hand to be forced, but he does force the hand of his followers. Now, what's going on here? John 6.15 tells you the answer. What's going on is perceiving they were about to come and take him by force. Perceiving they were about to come take him by force, Jesus goes off by himself. Isn't that interesting? This isn't the first time this has happened. It won't be the last. But what they want to do and what we know from the whole Bible story is they want to take him and crown him king. Casey told us last week that this could have been as many as 15,000 people. Uh, some people, Casey, even say that it might, might have been as much as 25,000. I, I tend toward the eight to 10,000 mark. Um, having went to the Dean Dome yesterday and seeing all those folks in one spot, and uh, I don't know how many was there, but it was a lot, more than I could count or more than I'm born to count. And then when we, when we came out of the place, it was like being in a herd of cattle. You know, you couldn't even move. You're just doing like this and I actually started mooing at one point, and thank God somebody started bawling beside me because they got my joke, you know. I, was, I knew I was teaching on this passage, and I was like, yeah, what would it be like if some movement happened with thousands of people, and they grabbed a hold of you? I was like, wow, I came to the Dean Dome at the right time to see this Bible story. Wrong time to see a Virginia game, but the right time to see this Bible story, Right? So these people were about to seize him, and this is what he does. And you got to look, look on your little parallel thing. In Matthew 14 and Mark 6, it tells us what he told his followers to do. He said, now I want you to notice it. He says he made them, he made his disciples get into a boat. Thousands of people want to force his hand. Jesus goes, no, you're not going to do that. But he forces the hand of his followers. That's an important thing to note in this passage and it's actually a very important thing to note in our own lives. How much of our life do we spend trying to force the hand of Jesus? Well, maybe y'all don't. Y'all are all the good Christians. I'm the bad Christian type. I'm always telling him what I want him to do, what I think he should do. You know, like, what does God do every day until I wake up and start giving him advice? And he just, he said, man, oh, Tim's up. We'll know what to do now. You know, and I start telling him how I think my day ought to go. You guys know it doesn't work like that. I get up and try that stuff, and God starts giggling. He says, Tim thinks everything's going to go smooth today. 
<laughs> we'll show him. We'll sanctify him with all these people who are going to interrupt him all day. But let's be honest. I mean, if you can be honest with yourself like I'm being honest with myself, don't we try to tell God what to do a lot? Don't we try to force his hand? And I just thought it was a neat little part of this story. You know, John, John's like, hey, those guys told that part of the story. I'm just going to tell this part. Makes the disciples get in the boat. He says, boys, go do what I'm telling you to do. And that's what Matthew 14, 22 tells us. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat. And it's, you can look at it in the Greek. He made the disciples get into the boat. Sort of tough language, isn't it? I was recently somewhere where a child was being disobedient. And, uh, oh, and I saw Amy do this, and it didn't work. I saw Amy do the exact same thing, and it didn't work. So kudos, Amy. And uh, this child was not answering their mom. And I was sort of giggling because it ain't my child. I don't got to worry about it, you know. And their mom started counting. And the kid come running from around the house. I mean, like a chicken struck by lightning. I have no idea what that mama would have done at the end of that countdown, but the child believed it. Amen. The other day, Amy's doing the same thing, and we hear a distant voice from the warehouse, I'm in the bathroom. So they got a pass. Didn't it? Am I right, Amy? Because she had been walking all around the warehouse yelling for one of the girls, and turns out they weren't being disobedient. They were being very obedient. What does this mean? What is, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat. How many, how many of us balk at that sort of thinking? There's all these commands in Scripture, and you know what Jesus intends to do with every one of his disciples? Make you get in this boat. No, I don't mean get in this boat, but get in his boat to follow him, to do what he says. That's an important part of this thing. Now, we're going to deal with bread. We've dealt with a little bit. We're going to deal with bread later on. Go back into Exodus 14, 15, 16. Read how he trained them through manna. The whole point of the manna was to train them to listen to him. Oh, so you're starving. I'm going to drop bread from heaven, and I'm going to teach you how to listen to me through bread. You know what he's doing right now? He's teaching them to listen to him through a storm. Secondly, secondly, when Jesus sends his disciples away in a boat, he goes away by himself to pray. Now, here's the part where most preachers just start saying, be like Jesus. In the moment of your struggle, go away to pray. Now, is that a wrong answer? Is that a wrong answer? No. Thank you, Casey. Everyone else is afraid to play along. You're exactly right. In a moment of struggle, is it wise to go away and pray? But is it just to go away and pray? I want you to mentally, we'll do it on the screen for you, I want you to mentally back up in the John narrative. Back up to John chapter 5, verse 19. Right there in the scriptures, Jesus says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Remember, this crowd, John chapter 6, verse 14a, or 15a, this crowd wants to take him. We believe they want to take him to crown him. Right? Just like God provided manna in the wilderness, Christ is providing manna. 
He's providing bread and fish. They want to take him. They say, oh, this must be the guy who's going to whip these Romans and get our country back in order and bring the glory of God back to Israel. And he goes, no, I'm not going to do that, okay? What is he doing? He is doing what the Father is telling him to do. I don't believe he went away to pray just because he needed a self-care day. I believe he needed a soul directive instruction. Big difference in those two. Too many, too many of us today go on these, these self-care days and we come out singing, I feel pretty, oh, so pretty. I feel pretty and witty and nice. Treat yourself. When the real goal of coming away is to say, God, who would you have me be? What would you have me do? Am I focused on the things that you have for me? Have I fellowship with you? Am I being renewed by your spirit? That's, that's a big difference. In Jesus' case, don't forget he's fully God, fully man. I have to believe the Bible. The Bible says he was tested in all ways and did not sin. Do you think he might have been tempted to say, I'm going to lead this band of people? I believe he could have been tempted. How important it was that he make sure that whatever the father does, the son does likewise. When Jesus sends his disciples away in a boat, he goes by himself to pray. How important it is that the people of God be led by the directives of God and not by the foolishness of the world. Too many of us, too many of us in America, too many of us in America, too many, and likely there are some in our midst who think just because everybody's doing it, it's okay. There's some theology here about not being carried away by the crowd. Thirdly, and to our passage very pointedly, God often tests and teaches his children through struggle and need. That is a tough thing for many believers to take in and receive. Amen? It's tough. God never does evil. God doesn't tempt us to sin, but God will try us. God will test us. God will allow suffering. God will allow struggle. God will even bring some of the struggle. Who told him to get in this boat? Come on, who told him to get in the boat? Who's in charge of the weather? Who created this trial? Holy guacamole Batman. Now, if these were good Southern American Christians, what would the prayer meeting sound like right now? Lord, please stop this storm. Lord, please get me out this boat. Lord, please get me on dry land. Dry land. Isn't our first impulse to say, get me out of the trouble, make it easy, make it stop? Who was saying, could somebody get Jesus to walk on water, scare me to death, and then relieve my fears? That would have been, that's my prayer request from now on. No matter what's happened, Jesus, if you could just scare me real bad and then show up right after that. The Lord's speaking to somebody in here. I think a lot of us, our first impulse in prayer is make it stop. I think our impulses needs to be like John the Revelator. Say, oh, the Lord is coming back soon. He goes, come on. 
Well, let me quote it biblically. Even so, come Lord Jesus. When Tim Bowes prays, it sounds like this. Come on. Amen. I'm, Lord, I'm, come, come on. Sarah's in the nursery. She and I were sort of having some hallelujah moments before the service. We were like, yes, we are both eagerly awaiting the coming of the Lord. Come on. Sometimes we got problems we don't want Jesus to show up at. Amen. Come on, talk to me, church. So, man, you know, I got some problems, but Jesus, this all, I'm going to work this out. Don't you come over here. You'll get to fooling around here. I, you know, make me stop the thing that caused me the problem, and I'll just hold on. I don't know, church. We need to wrestle with this. Go and look at verse 19 with me, if you would. <laughs> when they rode about three or four miles, so they, they'd been struggling against the elements for three or four miles. You know, the passage isn't about this, but a lot of times we'll struggle for a while. And we think, we think uh, maybe God's not watching. Somebody's there tonight. Somebody's there in your life right now. Remember, God's not going to tempt you to sin. God's not going to do evil. But God will use a struggle to test you and draw you near to himself. So here's the point of the passage. Number four, point of the passage is this. Here's the sign, and their salve. Jesus walks on water. Amen. Now somebody says, somebody might say, somebody might be tempted to say, somebody might be tempted to say, this is hard to believe. Okay, cool. I find much of the Bible hard to believe. Say, but I, I find it less hard to believe that God made the world. I find that less hard to believe than I, I find it to believe that from nothing came something. That's the atheist gambit. There was nothing, and then there was something. Well, there is not one case in all of, since it's the word of the day, it's not one case in all of science. Not one. Where something came from not something. Am I making sense? So if there's a God, now you know the old saying here, right? If a bumblebee had wings, he wouldn't bump his behind every time he jumped. If is the smallest big word in the English language, amen? We hang so many things on if. If there's a God, and I believe there is, and if this God is powerful enough and knowing enough to make everything, somebody say amen, and I believe he is, then doesn't he, you would imagine, isn't he able to command everything he's created? Here's the rub. Now, I'm not going to do it. But mentally, if you would, back up to pre-Thanksgiving. If you, if you can mentally back up to pre-Thanksgiving, you'll lose 10 pounds because you'll lose all the food you ate Thanksgiving and Christmas. So can y'all go back there with me? Can you go back? If you go all the way back to John chapter number five, Jesus had really ticked off the leaders there in Israel. And it tells us that, John chapter 5. It's not going to be on the screen because if I put it up there, Lord have mercy, I'm going to get to preaching on it. 
You know why he ticked them off? He ticked them off because of his claim at equality with God. You remember that? And this is what John chapter 5, verse 18 says. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, they were mad about that, amen? But he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So why were they out to kill him? He's making himself equal with God. Now, pause. I want y'all to hang right here. Hang in this story. Hang right here. I want you to think through something with me. What would it take for you to become so enraged that you would kill somebody? Now, other than when I'm in the pulpit, your boy stays strapped like a brand new knapsack. And if you do something to one of my girls, I'm going to be on you like smell on stink. You feel me? I have thought a great many times, what would it take for me to willingly wound someone? You jump on my girls, find out. I don't mean hurt their feelings. Oh, my gosh. We need to get over that. You're going to live in this world, you're going to get your poor little feelings hurt every day. I'm talking about if somebody's trying to do bodily harm to them, and there's some things I'm going to be gentle. There's some things in this father's mind that are worse than dying. Anybody tracking with me? Will Tim get on you? You know what I mean? You better, this is what they better be praying. They do something to my daughters, please, come on. Y'all better get here before he does. But I'm even then talking about a crime of passion. I think if it happens and I got time to think about it, I'm going to reason my way to trust God and the authorities. But in the moment, I might lose it. Any of you daddies tracking with me? It's an illustration. I'm not saying I'm right. I'm telling you a story. What would make a group of religious and national leaders start from this moment to plotting first-degree murder for months? His claim to equality with God. Y'all see how monumental that passage was? It was so far back we've forgotten, but we're, we're being reminded. They began to seek, the Bible says to seek all the more. Like they were already saying, like, we need to kill him. And now they're just ramping it up like fast and all the way dead. Now, if you read, go back to John 5, and I'm not telling you to because if you do, I'm going to get to preaching on it. At this point in the, in the narrative in John chapter 5, verse 19 and following, Jesus has this opportunity to go, oh, man, I didn't say that right. No, I'm not equal with God. I mean, you know, I'm, just trying to, I'm just trying to follow the Lord. My bad. He doesn't do that. He goes, no, nah, yeah, full blown. I only do what the Father's telling me to do. Boom. And if you listen to me, you're going to heaven. And if you don't, you're going to hell. He doubles down. So when we get over here to this sign, he is just being exactly who he is. Let the church say amen. Here's the message. Him being who he is is our relief. If he's not who he is, we have no relief. It's their salve. You know, I like alliterating. Just forgive me. The sign to them and to all the generations of the church is that he walked on water. That he came to them is the salve. It's their relief. 
Remember this, church, John 20, 30 and 31. How many times have we quoted this case? You quoted it, I've quoted it, Brett's quoted it. We're going to quote it some more. Amen? What's the point of these signs, church? Y'all tell me. Huh? That you might believe, and what is the result of believing? Have life. Isn't that good? Don't get so wrapped up in all the narratives and the wonderful application from the narrative. Don't get so wrapped up that we, we, we lose sight of this sign. It's to show us he is who he says he is. And you got to pick a lane here. You're going to hear me say this again in John. He's either, he's either a lunatic, he's either crazy and don't know what he's talking about, he's a charlatan, or he's, he's exactly who he says he is. So they're terrified. What does he do? Yeah, he, they cry out. Mercy gave the right answer, y'all. They cry out. <laughs> and, and I love it. They were, they were terrified. Uh, what sort of times would it be terrifying for the Lord to show up? That's a good question. Walking on water is one. But that's not all. I don't want you to miss this. The main point of this passage right here. This sign is written, recorded, and handed down to us so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the sent one by God, and that by believing you have life. Let the church say amen. But there's one more little gem here. Fifthly and lastly, there is a sequel to the sign. Immediate safe haven. Now, if you, if you were sweet and good enough to pick up one of the bulletins, pull this bad boy out. Got it? Anybody got it handy? Turn it over to the back. All right, go all the way to the bottom and look across. In uh, Matthew 14, 34, and when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Genesaret. In Mark 6, 34, and when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Genesaret. Church, who notices the difference in John 6, 21b? What's the difference? What do you say, Clay? Immediately. See, I think it's a sub-miracle going on here. And not just that, it says, <laughs> it tells us, it tells us that the, uh, the sea had chilled out too. You know, immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. What? Where did he walk out to them? In the middle. He came in the boat, and where did they get? The destination. See, eternal life isn't a time or a place, it's a person. Safe haven isn't a time or a place, it's a person. Isn't that cool? That ought to light a little fire under our Christians behind, even if their wood's been wet. That's just good stuff. So wherever or for whatever reason we're having fear, and there's all kinds of reasons to have fear. Sometimes fear is sinful. And sometimes it's all your warning lights going off. Like sometimes you ought to be as scared and you ain't. When you ought to be scared and you're not, you know what we call that? Stupid. Say, preacher, that's a strong word. I know, I meant to use it. But there's sometimes we should not be afraid, and we are. Look at how many times God tells Joshua to have what? Courage. You know, courage isn't the absence of fear. It's the presence of action in the face of fear. See, sometimes we're supposed to be afraid and do what we're supposed to do anyway. But what's cool about this passage to me 
is that these guys had a reason to be afraid. There's a storm. They had a greater reason to be afraid. Someone is walking on the water. But he gets in the boat, and they're safe because of him. I also get an image here, and I, I almost put this scripture up here, but I started talking about it too. I get the picture of Noah, amen? Who, 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 who sealed the boat? Who closed the doors? God. Who sustained them? God. But these ancients, these folks back in the day, they had more sense than we do. They were, uh, they, were, they were afraid of this storm. They were afraid of the ocean. Maybe we would do well to be afraid of it too, you know. Um, very popular thing these days. I bet you somebody in this room has done it. Is to somebody to be at the beach and to post a picture of their feet in the sand with the ocean out there. Anybody ever seen those pictures? I like it when people are doing it and it's obvious they didn't get their toes done before they took that picture. And that dude, could, that lady could climb up a pine tree. Break through the ball. And when I see him, this is no joke, I hear my brother David's voice. They're like that. I just love the ocean. It's so relaxing. And what I hear is that thing will kill you. And won't even blink. She'll kill you. So in closing, I want you to journey with me. I have it on the screen here. Through a reading from Psalm 107. Uh, Casey, I got ready to ask you to create our, but I said, no, let me trust the Lord. Yep. Listen to this. This is beautiful. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away. Man in their evil plight. That means even folks out there were doing bad said, oh man, we're not in charge. That's a picture, isn't it? They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their what, church? See, they were lost control. All the bullets were gone. All the slashers were gone. All the pounders were gone. The life breath was threatened. We have nothing to rely on. We can't control the sails, can't control the wind, can't control the sea, can't control the ship. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. And they were glad that the waters were quiet. And he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. Brothers and sisters, I will submit this to you, the greatest point of this passage is to show us he's exactly who he says he is, that we might believe and have life. But in so revealing this, he shows us sometimes he makes the storms so his children will come to a place of haven with him. To the Armenian soul, who's always bossing God around, we would say, the Armenian soul would say, you need to be like these disciples and let Jesus in your boat. Newsflash, if he wants to get in your boat, you don't have to invite him, and you ain't going to stop him. To the sovereigntist, I would say, the Lord has a plan and a purpose for all things and a salvation for his people. 
And when there's something plaguing us or we have lost our attention, he might just distress us that he might bless us. To the charismatic soul, they might just tell you, speak to that storm. That storm will tell you to shut up and sit your tail down. If God don't speak to that storm, there's nothing you're going to do to speak to it. What you best learn to do, and me too, is to speak from the storm. Lord, help me and bring me to safe haven. Brothers and sisters, I close. You see the room is kind of empty tonight. There's a lot of folks in our congregation not feeling well. I would urge you to check on each other. The Lord does no evil, and he does not tempt us to sin but many around us are being tried now by the struggle of health. May we all, may we all cry out to him. Bigger at stake than these things are the issues of our spiritual life. At some point, we run out of ammo. At some point, we run out of wind. We really need the Lord. As the guys come and lead us, I trust you to respond to the Lord. Maybe you need to get on your knees and pray. Maybe, maybe when John urges us to stand up to sing, you say, no, I need to sit here. Just be quiet. Maybe you need to grab a loved one and pray together. I trust you to listen to the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God, thank you for this amazing account from the scriptures. Most important of all, that we see you for who you are. But that we also see you is the one who careth for our souls. Father, help us to identify the things in our life that we trust that we ought not have our ultimate trust in. Help us to forsake them and trust you. First, most, and always. In Jesus I pray, amen.